If you're a fan of television, you've probably heard a story like this. A new show debuts and becomes a hit. Fast forward a couple of years, and the once unknown stars of that show are now in a contract dispute, putting the latest season of your favorite show in jeopardy. It happens all the time. For a recent example, let's take a look at the ABC sitcom Modern Family. That show debuted in 2009 to great reviews and a solid 9.5 million viewers. After the show's third season, the show is 15th in the ratings, the highest it would ever be, and averaging almost 13 million viewers. That's when the adult actors on the show, all making around 65000 an episode, had determined that that was no longer fair. With the fourth season right around the corner, they banded together and filed the lawsuit to void their contracts. It was filed cleverly just before a scheduled tabled read, which then had to be canceled. Negotiations started quickly, and just a few days later, the cast came back to the table happier and much richer. Their salaries had now jumped to around 170 to 180,000 an episode, with increases every season and percentage of back-end profits. Not long after, the kids on Modern Family would do the same thing, and getting more or less the same result. You can't blame 20th Century Fox, that's the company that makes that show, for giving in to their star's demands. What else could they do? Replace all of their lead actors with lookalikes? Audiences wouldn't go for that. It would be a rating suicide. But in 1982, that's exactly what Warner Brothers did when they found themselves locked in a dispute with the stars of the hit CBS series, The Dukes of Hazard. I'm Dan Delgado. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the contract dispute that was so heated that in the end, when everyone came back to the table, no one was claiming victory. Welcome to the industry. In case you are unfamiliar with the series The Dukes of Hazard, allow me to quickly fill you in on it. The show took place in fictional Hazard County, Georgia, and centered on cousins Bo and Luke Duke. They were just a couple of fun-loving good old boys driving around in their 1969 Dodge Charger. A typical episode of the Dukes would go something like this. The Duke boys would be minding their own business, but somehow catch wind of some nefarious scheme being perpetrated by the greedy businessman-slash-county commissioner who seemed to own everything in town, Mr. Boss Hogg. The comically mean Boss Hogg would hire some out-of-town thugs to come in and rob something or other, and the Duke boys would have to put a stop to it. Episodes would typically end with the Dukes beating the thugs or evading the corrupt local cops in a giant car chase that involved a ridiculous car jump and the yelling of yee-haw while said car was jumping in slow motion. If it sounds ridiculous, that's because it was. And it was also insanely popular. Since the series had debuted as a mid-season replacement in 1979, by 1982, it had grown into a bit of a phenomenon. It was the number two show on all of television in the 1981-82 season, averaging almost 22 million viewers a week. The number one show, just in case you're wondering, was Dallas. The next season was a slight drop to number six, although it was only one-tenth of a point behind the number five show, Alice, that year. It was after that season, the fourth, that Variety reported a somewhat unexpected value of the show. The Dukes of Hazard had taken in nearly $200 million in merchandising revenue for Warner Brothers. That's the company that was making the show. This was the highest of any series in television history at the time. 
Hundreds of items were out there with the Duke boys on them. Lunch boxes, bedspreads, t-shirts, yo-yos, pinball machines, you name it, and you could find a Dukes of Hazard version of it. The die-cast toy cars made by Ertl Toys, which I owned a set, thank you mom, outsold the Rubik's Cube in 1981. Now this news came as a big surprise to a couple of people. Namely the guys starring in the show, the two fellas playing Bo and Luke Duke, that would be John Schneider and Tom Wopat. Their contract stated that they were entitled to 5% of that revenue, but as of this point, they'd only received about $25,000. Schneider and Wolpat began asking questions about this, and when those questions went unanswered, they decided it was time to take action. May 24, 1982, they were supposed to be showing up to start the fifth season of the show, but they were instead busy filing a $25 million lawsuit against Warner Brothers. They even got the same lawyer that Chip star Eric Estrada had for his contract dispute. Now, Estrada was unhappy over syndication points, and Bruce Jenner was brought in to replace him. That took all of seven episodes before Estrada was back on set with a happy pay raise. Warner Brothers would respond by countersuing Wopat and Schneider for $117 million, claiming that the duo had libeled the suit in their press release and were in breach of contract by not showing up to work. Now, Schneider and Wopat, for their part, were also unhappy with the scripts and thought that this walkout would help change that as well. Catherine Bach, who played cousin Daisy Duke, wanted to join in on the strike, but Schneider and Wopat talked her into staying. And this proved to be a very good thing. Had Bach left the show, Warner Brothers would have simply canceled it altogether. Lesser known in all this is that cast member Sorrell Book, who played Boss Hogg, and James Best, who played inept Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane, also walked off at the same time. However, Warner Brothers made deals with them 24 hours later. What Warner Brothers didn't want was to be pushed around, and they insisted the dollar amount that was actually owed to Schneider and Wolpat for merchandising was closer to about $250. Seriously. And that's when Warner Brothers got the idea that replacing Bowen Luke would be easier than paying Schneider and Wolpat. Bring on the replacements, Cousins Coy and Vance Duke. A couple of more cousins and new characters who came in to look after the Duke farm while Bo and Luke were out trying their luck on the NASCAR circuit. The season 5 premiere spent all of 25 seconds explaining this in the opening narration. Bo and Luke are leaving Hazard to fulfill a lifelong dream of racing on the NASCAR circuit. And the whole family's taking them to the airport. Old Bo just couldn't resist throwing in one last jump just for old time's sake. Bye, boys. And that's where this guy enters the story. Byron Cherry, I played Cousin Coy Duke. Byron Cherry already had a history with the Dukes of Hazard before he was ever cast as the Bo Duke replacement Coy. Now, for more on that story, we're going to have to go back to the show's beginning in 1979. When they cast Dukes of Hazard in 79, they came to Atlanta, Georgia, and... I was one of the five guys that was up for Dukes of Hazard. John Snyder was not up for it. They didn't let he was 18. He was too young. They didn't want it, a teenager. He had every negative going against him that, uh, for an actor. Byron Cherry and John Snyder knew each other from showing up at the same auditions in Georgia and had become friends. In 1979, Cherry was a steward for Eastern Airlines and ended up losing out on the role because of his work schedule. 
John Schneider, on the other hand, refused to be denied. I, I get a job with Eastern Airlines, and I have to go down to Miami, Florida, to train for seven weeks. And then the day I leave, Warner Brothers casting is flying into Atlanta to cast those five guys, and now down to four guys because I left town. John Schneider was going nuts because he wasn't one of the four guys. So he ended up a smart guy and very talented. He, he ended up, I was gone, right? And I'm like, call him Asia going, do you think you'll come down to Miami? You know, I was down there for seven weeks so, and, and auditioned me and I uh, know I'm going to get this part. And uh, um, they went, yeah, you will get it. And so I said, well, what's, I didn't think about John Snyder. They went, well, um, John Snyder, you know, John, your buddy, he goes, he's on the way to Hollywood. I went, what for? Why is he going there? And uh, he goes, well, he's going there for a screen test for Dukes of Hazzard. I went, what, what are you talking about? So he's like, my agent, Linda's like, well, he crashed the audition. He went in with a six-pack of beer, didn't shave. He ripped up cowboy boots and went in there and did this whole whole routine, you know, um, acting. And and played, came, you know, win his bow, Bo Duke. And then he now, you know, he got it. And the rest is television history. So when Warner Brothers started looking to cast Coy and Vance, it was John Schneider himself that recommended Byron Cherry for the role. Cherry was still an unknown, having barely acted at all. He picked me up at the airport, me and my agent, when I came out to audition. He goes, you do not know me? He's in his Lamborghini driving me to Hollywood to take me to his condo. He goes, you do not, nobody at Warner Brothers, is gonna, they cannot know that you know me. Because if they do, you probably won't get the part. So you gotta, you, you know, don't mess up. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, I did recommend you, and but I don't know you, and you don't know me. That's all you need to know. And I kept, I kept, I kept to that. And they never once said, oh, do you by, by, you know, by chance you know John Snyder or any of the cameraman? So I, well, I would have said, no, I don't know him. No, he's Bo Duke, right? <laughs> but it was so. It was because, but John was thinking. He, he absolutely said, Byron, you're, you're going to get this. Just don't don't let them know you know me. The role was Cherry's, even though a nationwide casting call had gone out and literally over 2,200 actors tried out for the new roles. Casting Coy seemed to be fairly easy. Casting Vance, the Luke Duke replacement, took some time. I did show up, and uh, the next day I'm on an airplane like, like they did with Snyder, uh, Bo Duke. And next day I was on an airplane to Hollywood to do a screen test out in Valencia, California, where I ended up living, and with Daisy Duke, the real Daisy Duke. And uh, I'll never forget that. She was, you know, charming, charming, and just greeted me with just amazing. She was just so friendly. She's, she even called me the character name. She couldn't even say Byron. She didn't call me Byron. She called me uh, Coy. It's Coy Duke. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up getting it. And then they, uh, so they put me in a hotel, well, you know, they had all these blonde hair, blue eyed guys, you know, it's literally hundreds coming, flying in and out, in and out, in and out of LA for three weeks. And then dark, the dark headed guy who was up for Vance Duke. And then they, they couldn't put two people together, the coin Vance Duke, you know, uh, for, for marketing. And, and so they couldn't find a guy to go with me. So they had to, Warner Brothers calls me and goes, Byron, you, who do you, who do you want to work with? This is three weeks later, after three weeks of auditioning, I've read with, Literally hundreds of people, and CBS, Warner Brothers, CBS, and I was, I was literally, I was frustrated. I wanted to go home. I miss my family. I came out there with a pair of underwear, a pair of blue jeans, and a t-shirt and some tennis shoes. 
and that was it. Because <laughs> I was supposed to be there one day, one day audition and fly home. So they cornered me, the producers, and said, "Who do, out of all the people you want to work with, who do you want to work with?" I said, "Well, you know, remember that guy, Chris Chris Mayer, Vance? Uh, he would be a great Vance Duke, and we we became great friends. He gave me his phone number on the set that day of the day we did the screen test, day one." And I gave him my phone number, and we, we, you know, we were heavily into working out and stuff, you know, and and karate and martial arts and all that. And he, he's, he was a real buff, really great shape and all that. So, you know, we just got became great friends and, and went to the gym together and uh, party together. Just, he was a great guy, loved him. And um, and then next thing I know, a day later, went really you like you, you guys get along? I went yeah. I said he is he is cousin Ben. And the uh, next day, they called us back, called me back in. I was thinking they're sending me home with a pink slip, sending me back to Atlanta, Georgia, thinking, you know, I'm just, they're not, they can't find anybody to go with me. And uh, the next day, they called us in. They had a table, all the producers and writers and everybody had a table of champagne. I went, it's like eight in the morning. I went, you guys start drinking very early. I don't know how you do it. And I was, I was like serious because I thought they were sending me home. And then they went, well, we got a surprise for you. I went, uh, well, what is it? And because uh, I'm really ready to go back to Atlanta, Georgia, he, yeah, this guy puts a forearm around my neck and kind of sort of strangling me, you know, just as a joke. And I, I couldn't even look. I went. I look back. He's laughing. He goes. Uh, he goes. Hey, Coy, how you doing? Vance, cousin Vance here. How you doing? You ready? Ready to start filming? Christopher Mayer, sometimes credited as Chip Mayer, was a struggling actor with only a couple of small parts in TV movies when he got the role of Vance Duke. While Schneider and Wopat were telling the press things like, The Duke boys sure wouldn't stand for being cheated, and neither will we. An actual quote from their press release. Byron Cherry was telling the press things like, All I want to do is keep Warner Brothers happy and show up on time. That's an actual quote he told People magazine in 1982. And for the most part, that's what Cherry and Mayer did. They showed up on time and got to work as Coy and Vance. The cast and crew of the Dukes of Hazard eventually warmed up to the new guys. They were actually, I mean, absolutely amazing. You know, there were days when, you know, there'd be some some uh, sarcasms, uh, things going on here and there, some things said, nothing bad at all. I mean, but you know, after about two or three shows, I mean, the, even the teamsters and you know the the, the cinematographers and the, the people the. The extras that work on the set and everybody, you know, just really started liking because we didn't complain. Things were fine on set and in Hazard County until September 24th, 1982. That's when the fifth season debuted and the show that had been in the top 10 the last two seasons had plummeted down to number 27. As the show and the dispute went on, it would drop as low as number 36. Warner Brothers insisted everything was fine and pointed out that it was still winning its time slot on Friday nights. But the truth was, it was now in a virtual tie on Friday nights with the ABC sitcom Benson. And fans of the show weren't happy either. Something Byron Cherry remembers all too well. And then you, you know, you hear, it's more the fans, it's more the fans that stir up, some of the fans that stir up, they're like, oh well, I'm a... I love Bo and Luke, and that's, that's just there is no coincidence. It just there were stand, there were this, and there were that, and, and we messed up the ratings. And you know, I don't listen to any of that. Warner Brothers had believed that the car, the '69 Charger, known as the General Lee, was the real star of the show. As the fifth season went on, they learned that wasn't exactly true. 
And even though the show was sliding down the ratings as fans didn't take to Coy and Vance, Warner Brothers still held firm on their position. It was John Schneider coming to Warner's without any lawyers and agents that led to things being settled in the end. In the book, The Dukes of Hazard: The Unofficial Companion, Schneider is quoted as saying, The merchandise hitting $200 million surprised Warner Brothers as well. They weren't paying attention. It's such a shame. It really was an oversight, and we didn't know it. He also said that using the word cheated in their initial press release was a mistake, that using it had backed Warner Brothers into a stance, that they had listened to bad advice. Both lawsuits would be dropped, and neither side claimed victory. And when I asked Byron Cherry about the merchandising lawsuit, he had a very interesting way of looking at it. You know, merchandising, you didn't get a big check on merchandising. We sold millions and millions and millions of dollars of merchandising. But they they, they did, they, they went after Warner Brothers and it was Tom, uh, Bo and Luke, and then even Roscoe left the set that one day. He came back to the set, but uh, Bo and Luke left because they're suing Warner Brothers for merchandising, and they got their butts kicked. They did not win. They, <laughs> they lost a lot of money. With the lawsuit dropped just in time for Christmas of 1982, it was time for Schneider and Wopat to get back to work. But what about Coy and Vance? You know, Schneider and John and I always stayed in touch out in L.A., so uh, I even, he even put me up in his condo uh, with my agent for a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, he calls me and goes, Byron, just letting you know, it's right before Christmas. He goes, he goes, uh, I got some good news and bad news. I went, oh, just lay it out. What is it? Give me that bad news. I love I love bad news. No. <laughs> no, he's like, oh, we're coming back. And I went, you know, so that we're already done 18 or so shows or what it was. And then uh, I went, oh, that's not, I knew that. I kind of feel like, you know, I was very happy to do one show, John. And, and uh, now we've, we've into almost a whole season. I am just blessed. You know, it's just awesome. And uh, he goes, oh, that, you're not mad? I went, no, not at all. You know, I think it's great you guys worked it out and you're coming back. But, you know, I'll do more. I'd love to do more shows and maybe they'll keep us on. I don't know. And then Warner Brothers calls us in and goes, oh, got some good news and bad news. I went, oh, oh, I, I know the bad news. Bo and Luke coming back and we're, you guys are writing us off the show. He goes, they're like, how'd you know? I said, Snyder called me. It's funny because they didn't know that, that I knew Snyder. Now, the idea that Byron Cherry had about keeping Coy and Vance on the show might seem like a bit much. But consider that when Bo and Luke came back, Warner Brothers did issue a statement saying, and I am quoting here, We intend to keep them in the cast and take full advantage of the fact that they have created their own fan followings. And also keep in mind, Warner Brothers had already done this once before. Sort of. I'm going to need you to bear with me as we go down this rabbit hole. If you go all the way back to 1958, the third season of the popular western Cheyenne had just finished. Cheyenne, Cheyenne, where will you be camping tonight? Lonely man, Cheyenne, will your heart stay free and light? Cheyenne. very first hour-long western and the very first hour-long series period that wasn't an anthology. The star of Cheyenne, Clint Walker, wasn't happy with his deal. He wanted a number of changes to his contract. He wanted higher residuals, a better percentage on his personal appearances, and he wanted out of his recording contract that he had with Warners. Yes, Cheyenne sang. So while he sat, Cheyenne went on with a new lead. Unknown actor Ty Harden came in for the fourth season. 
and the show barely skipped a beat. Eventually, Walker came back with a slightly modified deal, but Hardin's character had done so well that they decided to spin him off into his own show called Bronco. Bronco, Bronco, tearing across the Texas plain. Bronco, Bronco, Bronco Lane. But that was the 1950s. And back here in the 1980s, there would be no continuation for Coy and Vance. No spinoff. Only the end of the road. The 19th episode of season 5 was called Welcome Back, Bo and Luke. And in it, the Duke boys return home, and no sooner do they get there do we see Coy and Vance leaving town, never to return again. Making matters worse was that Byron Cherry and Christopher Mayer had signed two-year deals. They held my contract for another year, a solid year, as if I was working another season and paid me in, in full for another whole season. And in a way, in a way, it hurt me a little bit. I loved, I loved the money, but in a way... They, they also go, but you cannot work any of the film gig outside of Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers didn't hire me for anything else, and, you know, at that time. So I just, I basically just went home to Atlanta and did some, did some work. I was teaching acting classes and doing seminars and, you know, to wait out that year and because they were paying me. But I couldn't, uh, I could not work on any film. And that was my deal with them. Coming fresh off the Dukes of Hazard, both Cherry and Mayer might have had a little bit of interest from Hollywood. Having them both sit for a year killed that off. Ratings-wise, Bo and Luke returning did provide an initial boost to the Dukes of Hazard. The show jumped back into the top 20 for the last few episodes of the season. But it still finished at 29th overall. In fact, the Dukes of Hazard would never be a top 10 show again. Even with Bo and Luke back for the full sixth season, it did even worse, finishing at 36th that year. The show's seventh and final season would be its worst, finishing at 61. Schneider and Wolpat now look at their holdout as a mistake. It's hard to blame them, though, considering what Warners was taking in and considering recent television history in 1982. Now, I already told you about Eric Estrada getting what he wanted, but he wasn't alone. In the fifth season of All in the Family, series star Carol O'Connor decided that he wasn't getting a proper leading man's salary and left the show demanding a raise. This was the reason for the three-episode arc known as Where's Archie? The storyline was that O'Connor's character, Archie Bunker, had gone missing. If the producers couldn't convince O'Connor to come back on set, they had a plan. They were going to kill Archie off off-screen and have Stretch Cunningham, Archie's pal at work and a recurring character on the show move into the bunker home. In the end, O'Connor got paid, though no numbers were ever revealed. If you were around in 1980, you probably remember the Who Shot J.R. cliffhanger hysteria with the series Dallas. What most people don't remember was that Larry Hagman, who played J.R. Ewing, decided that summer to take advantage of that hysteria and demand a big raise. Again, the show put a replacement plan in place. Here they had Robert Culp waiting in the wings to take over the role. Since JR had been shot, his face was bandaged up. Once the bandages came off and Culp was revealed, it would be explained that JR needed plastic surgery to recover from his wounds. But in the end, Hagman, much like Carol O'Connor and Eric Estrada, ended up back on set with a big fat pay raise. Now, some of you out there 
are television historians yourself, and you might be thinking, but what about Suzanne Somers? That didn't work out, right? And you're right, it didn't. But where Suzanne Somers went wrong was that her demands were ridiculously high. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Suzanne Somers was on a hit sitcom called Three's Company. And again, she was someone who decided that her salary was no longer fair. But she wasn't looking for double or triple her salary. No, she wanted five times what she was making. She had been earning an already impressive 30000 an episode and demanded 150000 an episode. Oh, and she also demanded 10% ownership of the series. When the producers refused to give in, she started calling in sick. This eventually led to her role being minimized and then fired. Had her demands not been so astronomical, she likely would have stayed on. There is one place in TV history where Coy and Vance were the originals and Bo and Luke the replacements. That would be on the cartoon version of the series, simply called The Dukes. It aired Saturday mornings on CBS and was being made the same time as season 5. But since Bo and Luke weren't around, the cartoon Duke season 1 featured Coy and Vance as the leads. But the funny thing about it was that since cartoons take longer to make, by the time the animated Dukes made their debut on Saturday mornings in February of 1983, Coy and Vance were already long gone from Friday nights. When the second and final season of The Dukes came around, Bo and Luke had replaced them. Once their year of sitting was over, both would get steady work. Mayer would end up on the soap opera Santa Barbara for a two-year stint amongst a number of guest spots on TV shows for the next two decades. He died in 2011 from a brain aneurysm at the age of 57. Byron Cherry is still out there acting. For a while, he drove a replica of the General Lee as his everyday car, just going around town, taking the kids to school, picking up groceries. He does regular appearances at places like the Tri-Cities Hazard Fest and takes the stage alongside John Schneider and Tom Wopat, and there's no hard feelings amongst anyone. And when the fans see Coy Duke these days... It's nothing but love. When you go to one of these shows, one of these, it's just amazing, the uh, fans. I mean, you've got little kids that look up to you, and you got grandma and grandpa that go, oh, yeah, I used to watch you every Friday night, you know? <laughs> You're my favorite. And it's just so heartwarming. It's so amazing. For anyone who might be interested, he is available for work. You can contact him at thekoyduke at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. This month's episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Music in this episode was by Topher Moore and Alex Elena, John Kirsch, The Whole Other, BizBaz Studios, and Silent Partner. Special thanks to my guest this month, the Koi Duke himself, Byron Cherry. If you enjoyed this episode, then feel free to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also do that whole leaving a review business, but there's no pressure there, okay? Also, if you have a comment or you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing radiodanshow at gmail.com or find the show on Twitter at TheIndustry13. And no, there's absolutely no meaning behind the number 13. They just gave it to me. That's it for this month. We'll be back again next month with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Good night.